This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again, and listeners like you who support us at patreon.com slash thetomeshow, or by shopping using our DMs Guild or Amazon affiliate links. Clear up all your misconceptions. Stay right there, let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play d and Welcome to Gamer to Gamer. I'm your host, Jeff Greiner. Once a month, I interview a member of the gaming community because gamers are awesome and the world needs more awesome. With me in this episode of Gamer to Gamer is one of the world's most famous dungeon masters. And on a side note, how awesome is it that we live in a world where I can unironically call someone a famous dungeon master? Anyway, like I said, one of the world's most famous dungeon master. He creates content for Geek and Sundry. You know him from Critical Role from over there, as well as from Force Gray on the official D&D channel. He's also been the voice of Striker from Mortal Kombat, Leon Kennedy in Resident Evil, Iron Man, Deadshot, Hydro Man, Rhino, Robin, Jack Cooper, the Witch King of Angmar. He's been part of Digimon, Pokemon, Halo, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Monsters University, and so much more that if I named them all, that would be pretty much be the entire show. I had fun looking through his IMDb page today. Uh, he has also <laughs> recently co-written a campaign guide for the D&D setting that he created uh, that was published by Green Ronin. Welcome to the show, Matt Mercer. Dude, thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. <laughs> I hope so. I hope you have a good time. Uh, at the end of the episode, we're going to hit you with the, the newly renamed Chain Lightning Round. I want to thank Ryan Costello from the No Direction podcast for the name change idea. And we're going to see yes. if you can beat the current best time. Uh, but before that, let's get to know who you are a little bit. So so let's start with something um, not at all uh, existentially chilling at all. Uh, who Who is Matthew Mercer? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, not existentially chilling in this place. Um, Matthew Mercer, I, I am a, a, I guess, a storyteller actor that grew up very heavily immersed in, in video games, uh, novels, role-playing games, and that all turned me on to a passion for performing arts and led me to the career I have today where... I do voiceover for cartoons and video games and get to play D&D on the internet now. That, that's the short answer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right, and and uh, where did this journey begin for you? Like, Did you grow uh, up in... I, I think you're in California now, right? So did you start out there? I mean, or? Uh, no, I, I was born and, and for the first about eight years of my life, I was raised in Florida, uh, Palm Beach area, the mm-hmm. poor side of Palm Beach. And um, I think a year or two in Colorado when I was four, but mostly in Florida at my very young years and then moved to Los Angeles thereafter. And I've lived here since then. Hmm. Um, but my my journey really began with my initial test with the Atari 2600 when I was when I was a wee babe, <laughs> which got me into the idea of gaming. And at that time, my grandmother on my dad's side, uh, Granny, as we called her, she um, she also had gotten to gaming and she saw my penchant for interest and in, in, in gaming and storytelling, so she began to read me Lord of the Rings. Hmm. And so she immersed me in Tolkien growing up, and then she used, she got me into Piers Anthony and Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and lent me all of her books uh, growing up. And I, 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 because of this, was reading at a very advanced level when I was very young. And she also, I found out years later, ran D&D for a short time before I was even born. So I guess it was kind of in the blood at that point? Um... 
But, uh, I but yeah, so, I, I, I've, I've heard the story of how people got into this geek lifestyle a lot, and very seldom have I heard my granny got me into it. That's awesome. Yeah, I was completely unexpected. We used to trade Nintendo games before she passed away. She, um, uh, she loved Lord of the Rings. She loved Tolkien, and so me and her had many discussions about it. She more than once read me the trilogy and The Hobbit, and so I owe I owe her a lot for that. And then. My parents were very supportive of creative endeavors, though realistic. Um, so as I grew up and got heavily into video games and cartoons, and uh, they were very supportive. I wanted to be an artist originally. I loved drawing creatures. I loved drawing monsters, demons. That was a big thing growing up for me. I wanted to be an illustrator. And it wasn't until my first year of high school that I was invited to my first D&D game. And I'd heard about it. I remember my mom bought me the books at a garage sale she found before, but I never had the opportunity to really play a game, just read them, just consume the content in these these fantastical worlds that existed in these arcane tomes that were salvaged from somebody's attic. And uh, when I played my first game, I realized, oh no, this is this is it. This is this is everything <laughs> I've I've wanted in an experience because it you know growing up so deeply entrenched in my imagination. Um, while I loved video games and I loved TV and film there was something that didn't quite scratch the same itch uh, to me as, as being immersed in one's own imagination. D&D &D was kind of the perfect merger of all those media to me. So I began playing fervently. I began dungeon mastering very quickly thereafter. And then it was through D&D &D that I discovered my love of performing arts. It was kind of what got me past my insecurities to try out for a play and get involved in theater. And a lot of the characters that I've played in theater and in video games and cartoons stemmed in some way, shape, or form as NPCs for my old D&D campaigns in high school. So I, I owe my entire career and really who I am today to role-playing games really opening me up at a young age. Wow, that's awesome. And and that story uh, nicely like answered my first like three questions altogether because I was going to ask how you got into D&D and how you got into acting, and you, you got it all bundled up right there at once. Look at that little package for you. There you go. Nice. Uh, and if I if if your if the IMDb page is correct and uh, and my math is good, uh, you are three years younger than me and started playing with second edition AD and D. Is that right? That is correct. Oh, yeah. look at that! Because that's the that's the edition I started with. I was eight when I started. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. So. No, it so, was it was definitely one of those uh, having to learn, uh, having to learn Thaco. <laughs> yes and the whole the whole like esoteric math and in inverse uh the whole the whole i mean it, it gave you an appreciation for interesting mathematics and it, it was kind of a a barrier of entry to the point where those that played D D and understood it well were generally on a certain spectrum of understanding how you could how you could do really strange math very quickly mm-hmm Oh no! I've, absolutely, I found um, in my youth, anyway, uh, playing D and D and playing Second Edition uh, specifically, um, really like forced me to up my my academic and intellectual game. Right? Whether it's, it's the vocabulary or the math or the reading or the social interaction, all of it. Right? Oh yeah, and it helped instill kind of this tiny dopamine rush whenever you came across a table <laughs> in, in a book somewhere. You're like, "Ooh, table!" Ooh, yeah. yeah. You still have those books? Oh yeah, nice. No, I have a, a whole shelf of all my old books, my old Encyclopedia Magicas, my Sword and Sorcery book, uh, both the hardbound ones and the little kind of you know maroon uh, paperback ones mm -hmm. they had for the different classes, like the uh, the Thieves Handbook and all those. Um, 
yeah, I, I they're they're wrecked, they're beat to shit, but mm-hmm. I have them still. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, I still have all the. In fact, mine still have the the tape over the cover because uh, my my mom was really into the whole um, the the devil worship concern with D and D or whatever. So oh, when I wow. brought the books home, I taped over the cover so so she couldn't see that it was D and D books. Oh, that's yeah. great. <laughs> that's that was the the solution that eight year old me came up with. That's a good solution, apparently. Well, it worked okay for me so so yeah. far, anyway. <laughs> uh, so so you're an actor, uh, and you got into acting through D and D. But I imagine you've gone through some uh, formal acting training as as well uh, as as the other things you've done in your life. Yeah, yeah, I've 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 trained. Uh, I mean, my first Crucible was being sent strangely through the Crucible. I did the the production <laughs> of the Crucible in high school, and that was what really kind of kicked in this 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 mm-hmm. fever for performing arts. And so I began to to talk with anybody I knew who had more experience than me to give me pointers to help do, you know, working through scripts with. And then as I got older, I began to look for classes, uh, different acting techniques and mm-hmm. getting comfortable in front of other people to explore elements of your personality that you're not as comfortable with. And I mean, that, that's, that range everything from having to delve into emotions that don't come to you naturally. Like I'm not, I'm a very diplomatic, very kind of non-confrontational person, but you have to learn to get in touch with your anger. You have to learn to get in touch with your sexuality. You have to learn to get in touch with all these elements as an actor that may be uncomfortable to you and the average person, but that's part of the experience and the learning uh, journey of being a performer. So I took many classes, trained with many people to learn how to better get in contact with these bits, and um, it improved my performing elements and it improved my DMing because when you learn when you learn the basis of what drives a personality, what drives a person, what drives an emotion, what what instincts and what uh, what desires push a person to make the choices they do, those become great keystone blocks to developing an NPC uh, or a PC if you're playing as a player and to really kind of realize and flesh out the experience of stepping into their shoes. See, you, you know where my questions are going before I even get there. This is the second time now. <laughs> Uh, Sorry. So, no, that's 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 awesome. Uh, so you're talking about how how learning to be an actor makes you a better gamer. Can you give some concrete examples of of how that's played out, whether it's uh, on the DM side or as a player side? Uh, I think um, I can't say anything necessarily makes you a better player. because it depends on the kind of game you want to play. Okay. You know, there are so many different ways to play role playing games. Um, it can be a very uh, kick down the door, kill things, take loot. You know. Dungeon Crasher style gameplay, which uh, and acting isn't really going to help you too much in that regard. But if you enjoy and prefer more narrative based gameplay, I find that training and acting one, uh, it gives you tools in which you can very quickly access emotions and uh, realized reactions in a scenario that do not tie to you as a person. Hmm. You can you can place yourself in somebody else's shoes more comfortably, and as such act and react more viscerally as that personality, no matter how similar or different they are to you as a person. Um, Plus, it helps you get more confident in being able to do more ridiculous things in front of other people, which at the table is part of, in my opinion, one of the greatest skill sets you can learn at a gaming table is how to be more comfortable being silly and playing with other adults and not feel that that need to be self-conscious about it and let loose. And I think uh, acting and acting classes um, help you get more comfortable in that space and improvisation, especially improv classes, learning to think quick on your feet and justify and yes. And, and, you know, listen and add to a narrative as opposed to taking over it, learning how to 
step into the light when it when the moment feels correct and then stepping out of it and letting somebody else take center stage when the moment seems to call for them to do it. Mm. These are all great skill sets on top of just having, uh, you know, learning and teaching your brain to move and react quickly to make those snap decisions. All those things lend to being a very, very uh, successful and and good player to have at the table and especially as a DM where most of your experience is having to improvise, improvise mm -hmm. af off of ridiculous decisions and players just completely mucking the plans you've made. Absolutely. And, and it's a, and it's and I think that kind of thing comes through. There's a lot of, uh, you know, live play, actual play, sort of uh, audio and video and things uh, that are really popular right now. Uh, no, in, in no small part due to your work on Critical Role, right? Uh, and, and sometimes some of us uh, laymen, non-actors, uh, are concerned, you know, that new players are going to look at the, that and be like, well, um, there's an expectation there that, you know, when you have a table full of professional voice actors, right, that they have a skill set in terms of role playing um, that not everybody has. We actually started a, a new show on the podcast recently with uh, some people with some theater background to sort of give tips and tricks just basically inspired by shows like yours. So. Yeah, no, and that, that's a very, very valid point. One I've I've been very vocal about because that when we started doing this show, I mean, we didn't think it was really going to be a thing. You know, we weren't we were literally under the impression when we were asked to do it because it wasn't even our idea. We were asked to do it. And we were like, I, I guess uh, will people <laughs> will people want to see it? You know, and so as it began to become this this whatever it is this I don't know phenomenon whatever whatever the the mm -hmm. show has become. We've been also trying to see how it how it affects the community and and people's reactions, both good and bad, and and try and you know figure out what that means to us as as people who care about this community. And I think that, that that's a worry that many people have and a concern that when they see these shows of people that are more you know thespian driven, they're more professional and and they're performing at least to expect that at a game table. And I one I've I've been very vocal to people to to not expect that sure i've been doing i've been dming for 21 years you know which isn't a lot in comparison to some people but that, i've been also been marrying that with 20 years of performing arts training and those lead to a very uh theatrical narrative naturally um if people want to play that game i hope to be instead uh something to aspire to or something to learn tips and tricks to improve your game but at the same time those are my strengths i have many weaknesses as well and there are many other dungeon masters out there that aren't theatrical that aren't actors by any means and they're much better at other aspects of the game than me they can build tighter narratives they can build more creative encounters they can build more intricate political plots that have a much you know less story you know story driven experience in that regard and what people need to understand is every table is different and, and mm -hmm. you need to find what type of game experience you're looking for what resonates with you and you can only figure that out by trying what's out there and it's okay to go to a game table play with a group and be like you know this isn't really working out with me. for me i'm going to find something else um, but the best you can out there, please don't come to the table with expectations like that. You know, you, it, part of the fun is learning everybody's play style around you and trying to build the space together. And, and there is like, like with acting class, like with improv, with any of these experiences, there's a little bit of faith, a little bit of having to, to jump into the unknown in hopes that everyone else will be there to support you. And I think those gaming groups that do offer that as support end up becoming, uh, a breeding ground for extremely strong friendships and incredible experiences. 
Yeah, and, and I like to to hope that you know worst case scenario you've got a whole you 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 are breeding a whole new uh, generation of gamers who are less afraid to put themselves out there and 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 really go for for broke when it comes to the to the role playing and the dramatic angle of, of all of that because they've seen it done that way for you know for so long. So I I really hope so. It's it, my my main goals when we set up to do this show. I I had two major goals. One, I wanted to give an example of what D&D can be at a time where there weren't a lot of examples of it on the internet. So many events, so many events or social gatherings, I've had people who come, you know, they'll hear me talking about D&D in a conversation, be like, how does that work? Like, I've always wondered, what is Mm -hmm. D&D? And it's hard to explain. It's hard to describe to somebody succinctly without it, like you sounding like a ranting crazy person. Um, so I wanted it to one, just be an example where you can just go, Oh, well, this is kind of how it could work. And you show someone a video and be like, Oh, okay, I could do that. I can get my friends together and play that and kind of, you know, help dispel some of that, uh, stigma or that, that, that perceived barrier of entry that really isn't there. Um, and the second thing was dispel the myth that dungeon mastering was impossible. Um, I grew up with that every, and mm. everyone, you guys all know there's a classic. Everyone wants to be a player. No one wants to be the dungeon master because there was this this understanding that it was a thankless job. It was it was so impossible to prepare, and it's a it's a you versus them mentality at the table. And I I, I really wanted to to prevent people from, especially new people coming into this community, to fall into that same mental trap. And uh, and yeah, like 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 you said, it was just hoping hoping to bring some good to this community that that raised me in a lot of ways. You know, I grew up on the forum boards. I, I grew up in these online communities when the internet first emerged and people began to find each other in the game space outside of your local gaming group where we mm-hmm. had places on the internet where we could give tips and tricks and recommend, you know, plot hooks and teach each other what we've learned to improve our game independently. So I just wanted, kind of wanted to make that a little evolution of that in, in my little world. And is it going to have downsides? Maybe. And I, I believe me, I've read plenty of stuff on the internet that's <laughs> sure. like, you know, Mercer must die. He has ruined the the entirety of D and I'm like, I think that's a little extreme. Um, <laughs> if you don't like what I do, you don't have to watch. And right. honestly, if a, if a person's going to come to a game table and expect it to be critical role, uh, that's on them more than it is on you because you and your players are still having a fun time at the table, and they set themselves up for a lot of disappointment. Um, you know, you can't look at a football game on television with the you know with the Steelers and then go to your local park and be like, why isn't everyone playing as good as the Steelers? You know, it doesn't work that way when people have been doing this for a very long time and a very, you know, uh, number of skill sets make an optimal uh, narrative experience. Like a lot of the great RPG shows out there, um, you know, we have the you know, Furies Reach and Maze Arcana folk. We have the High Rollers folk. We have uh, the, uh, the Roleplay folk. We have all these great mm-hmm. streams out there with different styles and different people that are all not actors that are just personalities that come together and are equally good and different in their own way. And so I think people who have a, a breadth of experience of seeing these other streams out there can see that you don't have to be an actor, nor do you have to expect a singular experience whenever you go to a table. Part of that that joy is finding the unique flavor at each game group. Absolutely. Now, we've talked uh, a bit about how acting has influenced your, your, your life as a gamer. Let's go the other direction then. How has being a gamer influenced you as an actor? Oh, tremendously. Um, one, it was, a, it was a fantastic breeding ground for me to develop different character voices. Um, dun- being a dungeon master, uh, you have to build a toolbox of personalities that you can jump mm. in and out of. And that's 
a large part of what being a voice actor is. You have to, with very minimal preparation, be able to make a series of very quick character decisions in your brain to tell you how to inform what this performance is going to be. And that's how it is when you DM. The players go, oh, uh, that one that one guy that we met a year ago at the outskirts of that temple, let's go talk to him. And you're like, oh, shit, what was that guy like? Well, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna say right now that he's had a bad day. He, um... You know, but he really wants somebody to help him with this crab problem down at the down at the bay, and uh, he has a thing for half elves, and that informs the performance. <laughs> and it's very much like that when you're going to a stage or when you're going in front of the mic. You have to make the same decisions for the character with no context, and then deliver an honest performance. So I think uh, gaming has very much prepared me for uh, a career in, in the performing arts. I think it's made me more fearless. I think it's made me more comfortable to be ridiculous in front of other people. Uh, and that's bled into just social elements. I think gaming is a huge boon to learning good social skills. I grew up, you know, an extremely nerdy, overweight, uh, Caucasian kid amongst a group of, you know, Asian uh, and uh, you know, second generation um, kids from other countries in their house. So I was I was very much a weird outsider with awkward social skills growing up. And I found that it was through gaming that. Uh, and performing arts that I, I learned to be a more functional person and more comfortable to communicate with people. And um, I mean, there's, there's many great studies out there that show how role-playing games are a, a very wonderful way to develop social skills, especially for people who have autism, who are on the spectrum and, mm. you know, need these experiences to, to help build, uh, you know, proper empathy and being able to, to understand how to communicate with people. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful experience. So it's an, it's definitely informed uh, for my my ability to to dive into acting fearlessly, which is important when <laughs> you have no money in Los Angeles for three years to <laughs> attempt to make a career out of this weird industry. Um, it's also allowed me to find the the people that I want to really hang with. If I'm in a party atmosphere with other performers or other entertainment folk, you know, a lot of people get caught up in the the drinks and the partying and the clubbing, which is fine. I I like dancing too. But uh, some social environments, I really enjoy finding the one person in the group that is also a gamer and it's both kind of sneak off to the corner and just talk about old campaigns or mm -hmm. our current campaigns or crazy experiences we had when we were running this module. So uh, I think it's helped me find my community. It's helped me find other actors and other people in entertainment in Los Angeles who are as passionate about geeky things as I am. And in doing so, uh, comparably, I found that gamers tend to be um, more genuine hmm. that makes any sense uh in my experience out here because you spend so much time at the table working as a group and you've built these team building uh skill sets you've uh been able to empathize with people that aren't yourself and i think that just naturally steers you to being a more empathic person and a more genuine person so uh i think gaming has helped me uh in this industry find the people that i really care about and want to want to spend my time with okay very good so, so over the course of Critical Role, um, you you have introduced the world to your setting of Tal'Dorei. Uh, where did that setting come from? Oh man, it's been a it's been a weird experience because everything has been reactionary. Um, when I created this world, uh, it wasn't designed to be a setting. It wasn't designed to be something that would be released in a book. It it was. I literally had gathered a group of friends together, most of which had never played D&D ever before in their entire life. And I began to create this world as their first experience in a vanilla fantasy classic D&D tropey world. 
you know, I wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel. I wasn't trying to to make it a competitor to Dark Sun or you know something that had a, a really unique twist in the cosmology or the way the world ran in a fantasy world. Um, I was just trying to make a setting that my friends could play and be like, oh, this is what D&D is like. But the further we got into it, the more we played, the more it just began to expand and grow and become its own unique framework. And then when we began doing the show, suddenly we had this whole community of people that were so invested in this world and these characters and these storylines. And uh, I began to feel like uh, I, I was inspired to want to gift elements of it to the community. I, I saw this amazing art and these amazing stories that people wrote based off of it and people that would tell how it inspired them to create their own gaming group and create their own gaming club at their college and inspired parents to play with their kids and it became like a family game night, which to me is like one of my favorite things to hear about. So as this world developed, people kept asking, "Can I? is it okay if I play my game in your world? Uh, and wh- what can you give me to help with that? I'm like, I don't, I mean, here, I can give you some notes, but it's all in my head. It's all this scattered madman scrawling in a folder on my computer somewhere. It's uh, No one's able to use this. And when Green Ronin approached me, they were like, were you, or would you want to write a campaign guide? And it was one of those, I could. That would solve this problem. <laughs> um, also, that's a lot of work. And I have to go through it, my old crazy notes and make it a functional thing. So uh, it was a very daunting task at first. Um, but once I... Once I was able to to understand that one is for the community and for all these people that that want to continue to share and build their own experiences in this world, that's important to me. And second, want everyone to know that I'm not trying. This is not trying to be the next Forgotten Realms. It's the, at least this book, this one continent of Taldore, is a very classic vanilla fantasy. It's not going to be a reinvention of anything, but it's a good starting point for people that are new to gaming or people that want that type of classic swords and sorcery fantasy feel. Um, and if we continue to do campaign guides in the future, I've since now this has become something to think about that I never really considered before, the other continents in the world, the other cultures, the other societies, I hope to get a little more creative and unique with as we progress. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's not a, a necessarily the, the expected sales line to say, well, if you want generic vanilla fantasy, this is the setting for you. I know, (laughs) but I'm not going to lie about it. You know, that's that's how it began. That's what it is. I I wanted to make something that was unique in in some degrees, but for the most part, uh, it's just an invitation to come play in the world that we've been playing in. And you know, it's not a we're not trying to hard sell you on it, but it exists if you want it. So okay, all right. So so what were the the sources of inspiration that that are there to bring some unique twists and whatever to Taldore? Um, for. For me, uh, I mean, with any sort of setting, I I, I grew up uh, loving Forgotten Realms. Uh, Ed Greenwood is just a huge inspiration, um, even though he's partially responsible for the the Drista Warden rush of the nineties. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I, uh, so it it was hard not to think back to the days that I read those old campaign settings, and it just seemed like so well fleshed out. But one thing I did remember, like reading the Cimmerillion, which was fascinating to me each time I read it as a kid, but it was still a very dense text. Mm. And a lot of these books, a lot of these campaign settings are very entrenched in the, um, what's the word, the academic presentation of a history in a world setting. And for me, I wanted it to be a little more focused on the narrative and storytelling element. So as opposed to having pages and pages about the the detailed political structures of various cultures and talking about 
um, you know, the the conversion rates between various trade guilds and these two areas, I, I took a step back from those logistics and focused instead on story hooks, focused instead on uh, lighter presentation that would allow players of all different experience levels to still read through, be pulled into the way it's presented and the way that it's written, and still be given enough uh, inspiration to take the disparate threads that I leave for them and then run with them. So um, I wanted to make it a book that you could enjoy just reading it as much as you could actually incorporating it into the campaign. So it's not as dense and not as detailed as other campaign settings, but I wanted to make the presentation a little more welcoming and a little more narrative focused. Mm -hmm. And then you threw so, a little bit of Last Airbender in there too. Well, yeah, well, that that, <laughs> that, that purely came from uh, my fiance, Marisha, because when, yeah. we, when we created the campaign, once again, like I, I like my players to write their backstories. I give them a basic setting. I like right. them to write you went generic, and then she brought it to the table. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so she, because well, we're, we're both huge fans of Last Airbender, and she created her druid character, and her, and since we started in Pathfinder, uh, she chose to be an air druid. And so she said, well, if I'm going to be an elemental air druid, then what about the other elements? So she wrote this little backstory about there being these different elemental tribes, and she was of the kind of the air uh, Ashari tribe, and she was supposed to be coming up as this this princess that part of her responsibility, this kind of rumspringa for her culture, was she had to go travel to the other tribes and get a blessing of them in return, and then she could be crowned. And so as we began to expand the world, it, it became this very heavy elemental theme that tied into the uh, the creation myth of the world with the you know the chaos elements and the early primordial titans and the battles between the uh, the prime gods that created uh, what we know today as intelligent life versus the chaotic elemental forces that existed beforehand and the kind of the battles between uh, law and order. And and as we began to progress, it was like, yeah, you can't avoid the inspiration from Last Airbender because it's such an amazing world. And whenever you think of elemental tribes of anything, I mean, that I kind of became the cornerstone of media for that uh, for that presentation. Sure. So definitely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And you got into you you talked about the the almost elemental uh, conflict with with the gods and and primordials and that kind of stuff. It surprised me when I discovered that you that you um, that Taldori never really existed in fourth edition because that was very much embedded into the fourth edition uh, sort of storyline there. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, and all that stems from classic mythology too. If you look That's at the, you know, the, the classic, uh, you know, Greek Roman pantheons versus mm -hmm. the Titans event, it's all, you know, so much of modern day fantasy mythology is based on classic mythology because, I mean, honestly, all all storytelling is derivative because uh, we have thousands and thousands of human culture. Uh, being creative and imaginative and telling stories from generation to generation. And then you take what you've learned and then you create within that space. Um, so some people are very, you know, like, well, nothing new will ever be created. I disagree. Something new is when you take things that exist and then give your own spin on it. Yeah. You'll never truly create something completely new, but that's okay. It, as long as you're making something that is honest to yourself and that you enjoy, other people will enjoy it as well. Absolutely. So, so now that you've turned the this campaign that you've been or the setting that you've been running uh, based off of the scrawled notes in a computer file somewhere and and the <laughs> the mad ramblings in your brain or whatever, uh, now that it's it's been set down into a book, right? It's it's been there's a canon now. Yes. Um, does that become a problem for you uh, <laughs> as a DM? Like, uh, are you worried that the players are going to go off to some some place they haven't been before and, and you're worried like you're going to divert from the official canon? That that was definitely a concern when I was writing the campaign guide because <laughs> we were still in the campaign when it was going to come out. 
Um, so one of the early decisions I made was I, I knew when they were going to finish this, the major arc they were in at the time, the, the Chroma Conclave arc, that there was going to be a time jump. I wanted there to be some time pass where there's peace, where they can kind of develop their personalities and the world around them and, and have influence on how uh, Taldorei advances um, without the constant fear of, you know, cataclysmic destruction. Um, so I decided to set the campaign guide's timeline during that year break. And what that meant was by the time the campaign guide was released, the my, my party would have advanced past that timeline. And most of that story was actually going to end up taking them to a different continent anyway. Okay. So it was one of those like very like, okay, the campaign guide is locked in now. What they're playing in the game will not really influence what's in the campaign guide because it'll be after the fact and it'll probably be somewhere else in the world for the most part. So it was... It was a conscious decision to try and find a way to release the book and not have my current game fuck up my own canon. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is what the world looks like now. We're going to go over there and play because this is <laughs> this is all in stone now. <laughs> so. Exactly, but it worked out because the, the big bad that I had designed for the arc that we're finishing very soon, I think next week's the final boss fight mm-hmm. of our whole campaign. So um, it it yeah it it worked out to to very much fit within the overall history of the world for this final battle and this confrontation to take place instead of on Taldore on another continent of Asilra, which is essentially where civilization began in the oldest city that exists, Vasselheim. It's where it's where all the initial uh, creations of the gods created the first uh, society, the first mm-hmm. civilization. It's the only civilization that has survived all the major calamities that have hit the world. So um, it all made sense. It all made sense, and it worked out very well to keep them away from the canon that I just literally put into ink. Mm-hmm. Very good, yeah, and 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 I've still got a lot of that ahead of me because I'm I'm way behind. Um, but I'm really I'm loving the fact that you started releasing episodes by uh, via podcast. Um, that's yes. been, that's been a great boon for me because uh, I don't have a lot of time to sit and watch, as we discussed before the recording. I'm a very busy oh, yeah. person, but I can I listen. I can listen in the car or doing dishes or whatever, and and usually I listen at like double speed so I can get through things even faster. So that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm I'm so glad. It, it took us a while to finally get that going because each episode is, you know, anywhere from three to four plus hours, mm-hmm. and that's that's a lot of content to consume. I'm I'm still amazed that people do. Like it's I'm still blown away that people are are coming along with us in this. It's it's exciting. It's wonderful. And, and I I'm like I I wouldn't have the time to to watch my own show. <laughs> how, do, how, do, how do people do it? So the podcast was something we've been fighting for for a long time, um, but it takes a lot of resources to go back for that much content and make sure audio is balanced as best as they can and that the episodes are clean. Um, and finally, because the community has grown so much and people have clamored for it, we were able to get it approved. So I'm, I'm so happy we have it now coming out on podcasts. We have, uh, we're getting them out hopefully faster and faster as we go and eventually get people caught up um, and up to date with the new uh, with the with the entirety of Vox Machina's journey by the time we start the next campaign, I think is the hope. We'll see. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I, 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 it's never made sense to me why more uh, live streamers don't do that. It's like there's there's a whole audience that you could be reaching that you're not. You know, so uh, yeah. the more the more ways to to consume the the content, the the more people can consume it, right? So. Exactly. And, and, and while you do miss the aspect of seeing like facial expressions and, sure. and you know, react in that regard, um, it's still it's still a theater of mind experience. You know, it's it's the verbal storytelling of any role playing game is like an audiobook in a lot of ways. And you whatever you don't see, you get to make up for yourself. And that in itself is a very wonderful invitation, just like reading a fantastic novel. So, yeah. And to some degree, there's the, the, uh, the podcast audience is somewhat 
used to that anyway, the theater of the mind nature of that anyway. I mean, actual play yeah. podcasts uh, are a thing that's been around for over a decade. So, oh, yeah. so people playing g- games on on social media was not invented by Matthew Mercer. You know? <laughs> oh, God, no. No, I, 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 uh, I've, I mean... I've I've been keeping track of and and been watching this rise of of gamer alternative media oh, yeah. uh, for a very long time and that that's kind of what inspired us to agree to do this was there was a precedent for it and there were people that we had the acquisitions Inc games and their podcast mm-hmm. uh, we had the nerd poker podcast we had uh, all these great resource people talking about gaming and live play uh, uh, podcast out there that it was like okay well I I guess there's an audience for it I'm the audience for it. Um, so yeah, no. Let let me reaffirm that to anybody who's listening to this and hasn't hasn't watched anything before Critical Role. We did not invent this. This we we are just a continuation of a really awesome trend of of awesome talented people putting their joy out for others to experience. But I would give you a lot of credit for a, a big upswing in in the last few years. So so good on you. I, I, I'm happy to have, to have brought, brought this game to some more people. It's, it means so much to me, and I'm I'm glad that that. I was, I was hoping to be a beacon to introduce people to it or otherwise would not have the opportunity. Yeah. So you play uh, publicly a lot in Tal'Dorei, and, and uh, you also have been playing a little bit in the Forgotten Realms recently. Uh, mm-hmm. What is your favorite setting beside your own? If you, if you couldn't play in Tal'Dorei anymore, what setting would you play in? What, what off-the-shelf the setting would you pick up? Oh, man. I... I mean, I I grew up with Forgotten Realms, so I I know it fairly well. Um, but I I would probably lean Dark Sun because mm-hmm. it's so different. The low magic kind of uh, dark and 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 different cultural experience of mm-hmm. what Dark Dark Sun has set up for me was it was so different flavor wise than other settings that existed at the time that I, I I take a lot of inspiration from it. If not that Planescape, definitely. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, see, Planescape is is such an easy answer because it can kind of take you to all the others too. So. True, true. <laughs> but, but, but it's it's a setting that invites things to just be weird. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, it connects all the other settings, so it becomes this perfect hub point once you play to a certain level. Where you, where if you're like, hey guys, do you, do you want to try out some Dark Sun, or you know, do do, do you want do you want to try out some Forgotten Rubs? You want to try out some Greyhawk? We'll just find the right door. You know, it, it's just it's wander cool into thing. Ravenloft for an afternoon. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so, so uh, generally speaking, I would say the internet is aware of your your current public group. Uh, do you get to do any playing that isn't in front of cameras these days? I do. It's it's rarer, <laughs> uh, um, uh, but but I do. I I've, I occasionally will play with friends. Uh, I'll run games for old friends of mine uh, who don't get the chance to play very often. Mm-hmm. Um, I've run some. I've run. I've actually run a lot of private games with uh, Joe Manganiello, who I met through D and D and Force Gray. Um, so I've come and run games for him and some of his gaming group at his house. Um, me and my fiance are are in the process of trying to convince Sophia, his wife, to play a game because D and D is such a big part of his life, and she's never done it before. And we're like, we're trying to convince her. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so I've, I not not as often, and I, I will say part of our push with Critical Role on set is to make it as minimally invasive to our gaming experience where we don't feel like we're playing to the cameras. We still want to just be us at the table playing for each other. And uh, we've, we've managed to maintain that for the most part, which has been great. Um, but but I, I do occasionally get to play privately. Not as often as I'd like, maybe, but that's that's the uh, the other side of the double-edged sword of, of the show's um, popularity, I guess. Sure. So when you do get to play um, when you're not on camera... Are you always playing D and D, or do you do you dip your toes into some other things? What are you playing? 
Oh man, uh, I I love to to vary it up. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, uh, big fan of the Lovecraft universe. Um, I'm excited to try out the uh, the, the new rules yet. I haven't seen them, but I, I know they started going out soon. Um, uh, a, a little bit of uh, where uh, vampire. Okay. Um, my buddy Talison just got his hands on the new rules, so we're and he's he's plotting a game soon, so uh, we're gonna play in that a little bit. I love Deadlands. Um, oh, okay. Deadlands is still one of my favorite settings, the Weird West, and so I've I'll, some of my old friends we get together and play that every now and then. The the original rules with like the poker chips and the uh, mm-hmm. the cards uh, for hex casting and stuff. Um, I love Paranoia. Paranoia was one that kind of blew my mind when I first got a chance to play it in the late nineties. Um, yeah, I, I, things that are that are weird out there and more storyteller driven. Mm-hmm. I feel, um, I feel like you would have a lot of fun with uh, Dusk City Outlaws. Have you played I'm that? Not, I'm not familiar with that, actually. What's that one about? Yeah, so so it's a um, it's actually one of the guys who used to um, work for Watsy, and now he's um, um, doing other stuff, uh, working on Destiny, I think, actually. Oh, um, cool. So, so he um, he decided he wanted to get back into doing some some tabletop design, so he, he designed this game and kickstarted it and whatever, and the whole idea is that it's a, it's a fantasy setting... But it's a heist heist story, so it's you know Ocean's Eleven or Leverage, but it's a fantasy setting, and each one is you know oh, you, you get your job, and 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 you're all different members of different factions that come together, and it's very storytellery. Like as the as the players do things in the world, then um, they generate heat, and they the the storyteller collects the heat as tokens and can spin them to throw more obstacles at them, and so it's got this mechanical storytelling sort of component to it. That's awesome. Yeah, you should check it out. I want I I'll have to check that out. And I re- also I just remembered it. I really want to play Honey Heist. Ooh, I haven't heard of that one. Honey Heist, uh, it in a similar way. It's, it's a heist RPG, but uh, if I remember the details of it, like there's an event happening on called Honeycon 2017, and you all play bears that are planning <laughs> to steal the honey. The honey. Mm-hmm. And uh, you y'all just get to play a bunch of goddamn bears, and you you know you see what your role is in the group, and uh, you each have a hat. And it's ridiculous. It's over the top. It's very silly. It's very, it's it's very. Uh, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the game. Everybody is John a little bit, mm. which is kind of chaotic. But uh, but yeah, I, I think we're trying to convince Laura Bailey, one of our players, to mm-hmm. to GM a game of Honey Heist, and I'm I'm excited <laughs> at the prospect. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so one of our listeners, uh, when I posted on Facebook that I was going to be talking to you, uh, wanted to hear three bits of DM advice from you for new DMs and then three different tips for experienced DMs. Ooh, and, I, and, okay. and you haven't done your, your DM tips for a while. You, you passed that off to, to uh, Satine, right? So Yes, yeah. She Well, for one thing, uh, I there's only so many tips you can hear from one person before, <laughs> you know, one, they just start running in, into the same tips over and over again and two each person has a different experience at the table to add mm-hmm. so i wanted to pass it off and uh plus i feel like we need more female voices in the gaming community any Absolutely. way to be leaders and to to drive forward the uh you know this new wave of tabletop where we're seeing so many more women finally either getting into it or being able to say like what i've always been here what are you guys saying it's mm-hmm. a boys club you know it's been really cool it's a team was just the perfect person she's she's so She's so vibrant. She's so much fun. And she she's so passionate and loves it so like as much as it's not more than I do. So she was a perfect choice. Um, but to answer your question, let's see. Three tips of advice for a new uh, DM. One, uh, don't over prepare. 
Mm-hmm. It's e- it's easy to feel like you have to flesh out every little detail, and I mean, if that's if that's how you prepare anything, then you can. But most of what you've set is going to get thrown out the window. It's the nature of any role playing games, and you don't want to end up spending you know twelve plus hours for a three hour game and realize that eighty percent of it never got used. You're going to feel like, well, that was a big waste of time. Um, so um, don't don't feel like you have to flesh everything out. Um, you can you can be fairly loose with some of your notes and then improvise in between because most of the game's going to end up improv anyway and that's where some of the real thrill to me of being a dm is is when you have to make stuff up on the fly you have to make choices and justify things on the fly and the players kind of you know guide you off your rails a bit um second bit of advice make sure you communicate with your players before the game what kind of game you all want it to be um if if you and the players don't have that sort of agreement at the beginning, it's very easy for newer players and newer DMs to build an unintentional dissonance. If you have two players at the table that want more of a, you know, fight things, kill it, take their loot type experience, and two that really, really want sort of a, a romantic love story, partway through that game, someone's going to be really unhappy with how it's turning right. out. So you want to have that conversation one, so that all the players can kind of get on the same page and know what to expect. And two, you as a dungeon master can prepare a game that facilitates all the things that the players are looking to enjoy. You know, you don't want to spend 12 plus hours designing a world that's an intense, you know, politically intrigued story. And everyone's like, uh, I just wanted to go kill goblins. You know, then you all end up really disappointed with the experience and you blame yourself. So communicate in advance with your players what kind of a game they want to play and then tailor what you prepare to facilitate that type of an experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and number three, um, I would say when you when you build your story arc, your main story arc for the game that you're going to run, have some small side arcs that may or may not come into it prepared. So if your main arc is, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the magistrate's daughter was kidnapped and taken to this, this uh, you know, hidden fortress in the mountain and you have to go retrieve her. Also, maybe create a story about a... Uh, an ancient warrior was turned to stone in the forest and, uh, you know, he could possibly can be restored and may aid you on the journey. They may not find them, but you have that in your back pocket in case they end up wandering and getting lost. I have a small little story on the side about a, uh, um, a, a hidden alcove that has a lake that when you touch the water, you fall in love with the first thing you see for 10 minutes, you know, because that could lead to some really funny, ridiculous shenanigans with your party. Uh, they may not find it. And all it takes is a quick little sentence for you to write. Like literally that what I just told you could be all that you come up with, but you have that in your back pocket. That way, if the players end up going a little off the rails, you can throw something fun at them to just make it interesting and memorable. Um, So taking taking notes like that as just little things that you can throw in down the road and that that can lead out to NPCs as well. Create a few NPCs that can tie into these story elements um, that you can plug anywhere in the game when you need it. You know, uh, you, you can create characters and NPCs that aren't specific to the story and just have them in your back pocket. That way, if the players end up asking, OK, uh, I want to go over and let's go to that that stable and see if we can rent horses. You're like, oh, I didn't even think the players were going to want horses for this. Oh, God. Uh, you can look over to one of the four NPCs that you created and make those the stable master. And they can introduce the idea that there's a guy made of stone in the forest. And now you have a whole side quest that you didn't prepare for. Mm-hmm. But the players, from the player's perspective, man, you really fleshed this out and wove this really well thought out web. And you can be like, oh, yeah, I totally did. Yeah. Totally not <laughs> making this up. And that's really most of what a DM is, is, is 
trying to last minute weave together disparate narrative and play it off like it was your plan all along. Mm-hmm. So, so on the other side then, for the experienced DM, you've got somebody like me. I've been playing the games for, for almost 30 years now. Uh, what DMing tips can you give somebody like me? Oh, man. Uh, one, I don't think I'm qualified to give DMing tips to someone who's more experienced than me. Uh, more, more just trade notes and see what sticks. Um, I would say, one, be gentle to new players. If you've been playing for a very long time and you have like long-running groups, people that know the game really well and have, understand the tropes, uh, and don't fall into the same pitfalls of people that are new to gaming or new to the system. Uh, just remind yourself that and be patient and be willing to to guide them a bit. And that goes to the players as well. If you have three very experienced players at the table and two that are new entirely to the experience, and I've seen it happen, uh, they let the frustration get to them of having to wait for them or for them on misunderstanding the rules or misusing their class and not being as optimal in their spell or ability usage. You have to just remind yourself that that that... You know, this is a new experience for them, and that's what the game is about. It's not necessarily being the most optimal or the fastest. It's about building a memorable story together, and sometimes the fumbling and the the, the ridiculous choices make for very, very memorable experiences. Um, two, let's see. Um, don't. I, I'm impressed. How, I'm impressed with how cohesive advice you came up with on the fly. I didn't get. I didn't get. Didn't give this to you ahead of time. So no. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, <laughs> Two, no matter how long you've been doing this, you can always improve and you can always learn from people who are more inexperienced than you. Um, So don't be afraid to have conversations and reach out to people uh, who may have been playing for five, 10, 20 years, you know, fewer than you have and ask about what were some of the most memorable things and most enjoyable things they did as a dungeon master. Mm-hmm. You know, I for me, convention experiences like Gen Con and what I'm looking forward to, hopefully if I get to Gary Con this year, Origins, are sitting with other longtime and new DMs and having these stories and telling each other, what's your favorite moment? You know, what's the thing that you regret the most that you've done in a campaign? And all of us learn from each other's mistakes and all of us trade notes and improve each other's uh, game running experience. So um, just be open to, to the consideration that no matter how young a person is, no matter how old a person is, no matter how much experience they have in comparison to you, you all have things to learn from each other and help each other improve how to run a game. Um, and number three, uh, if if you start feeling yourself burning out, don't be afraid to walk away. Um, I think all of us have been DMing for a long time. It's very easy to feel like you're always running the game or that the pressure's on to constantly deliver or if you're having... Mm-hmm. Um, writer's block for game preparation that you have to push through and burn yourself, you know, burn your candle on both ends to get it done um, because there's an expectation that you've been doing this so long you need to be professional about it. Don't kill yourself to try and run a game. If you're not enjoying it, your players won't enjoy it. Bottom line. And, and even if you've been doing this for 30 plus years, if you start feeling yourself getting a little tired of being in the DM seat for a moment or you're not inspired to see where the story takes you, just tell the players and step away. Take a break, relax, mm-hmm. give somebody else the opportunity to step up and run some games for a while. And don't don't be so prideful as to burn yourself out entirely from the experience at the game table. Absolutely. That's good advice. Uh, now, on the subject of advice, uh, what about for the gaming community? Uh, what advice would you give to the community as a whole in terms of its community-ness, not necessarily its gameplay? Uh, I th- it's interesting, too, because we have this – we have these – I want to say three major factions that are all converging right now. Mm. We have 
we have the old school gamers like you and me and before our time that have been playing this game for so long and have been immersed in the online communities that were born out of it who are, you know, used to long form threads on how optimally build your monk in 3.5 to solo a Tarask in six rounds. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, who are now converging with an entirely new generation of gamers that have only recently discovered role-playing games and are bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and just wanting to discover, you know, the joy of it. And then we have this kind of middle area where we have a lot of older gamers who weren't invested in the online communities who lost track of gaming for a long time. Mm -hmm. They got, after college, they got careers and families and while they have all these fantastic fond memories of gaming as younger, they never had the chance until recently to get back into role-playing games. And so when all these communities are converging, it's very easy to create some dissonance because you have different perspectives, different expectations, and different ways of playing the game. And many sides can think that their side is right and your side is wrong. And I see a lot of that judgment on these online communities that I, I mean, not, not a lot of it, thankfully. I think, honestly, the role-playing game community is much more accepting than most forms of media out there. And I see a lot more... Uh, positivity out there than not but i do see this dissonance rise up i do see these these arguments happen these uh these kind of you know get off my lawn gatekeeper mentalities that still mm -hmm. exist um that i feel are not just toxic to the introduction to new gamers but toxic to maintaining the thing the community they love in general um so my advice would be to if anything about other role-playing gamers that aren't part of your game group frustrate you walk away and take a minute to breathe and realize that it really has no impact on your enjoyment of the game. Yeah. They, they are playing their game. You go play your game. Uh, and the, the two do not need to meet if they're incompatible. Exactly. You can state your opinion if you want, but if somebody else is playing in a way that you don't agree with, that's fine. Cause they're not playing at your table. I've been saying this since well, when it was common when fourth edition came out, right? Uh, and the edition wars were sort of heating up and all that, right? <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I and I always had the conclusion: look, there's no such thing as edition wars. There's just idiots and assholes, you know. So, <laughs> so just don't be one of those. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so uh, you are you've got the campaign setting out. You're wrapping up the first massive multi-year story arc of uh, Critical Role. Um, what else is go what what else are we should be looking for you late uh, coming up? What are you working on? Uh, oh, gaming stuff, man. voice acting stuff. What are you doing that we should look for for the name Matthew Mercer on? Oh man, that I can talk about the frustration yeah, sure. of non-disclosure agreements is that there's stuff like I want to talk about but I can't yet. Uh, um. Well, let's see. Uh, we we just started releasing our Critical Role comic book um, with Dark Horse Comics. The first issue came out September 20th. The next one's coming up this month uh, in October. It's it's a six-episode arc. That's the how Fox Machina, the party of, of you know, Critical Role's adventurers, first met. And it will hopefully, if it continues, um, be a comic interpretation of the storylines that people didn't get a chance to see pre-stream when we were playing at home for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. Um, there, uh, the first arc is written by Matt Colville. Uh, many of you know from the D and D, uh, his, his, his YouTube, uh, mm -hmm. videos on how to run the game. He's, he's fantastic. He's a brilliant writer. Um, so that's coming, that's been coming out just recently. Um, as far as voiceover goes, I mean, Overwatch is always updating. Um, we've recorded a lot of fun things coming up in the near future. So look, keep an eye out for announcements, uh, in Overwatch. Excited about that. Uh, let's see. Um, Oh, I'm trying to remember what what I what I can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> That's the trick, it's, isn't it? I know. 
Um, oh man, it's it's right around the corner. Uh, what when is this going to air? Probably mm, it'll be at least a week from now. Okay, then uh, for those of you who've been playing along with the uh, the Batman Telltale game series. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a, a, a new cool storyline called The Pact that's coming up. I, I get to play a really fun character in that that I, I hope will be announced by this time. But if not, I'm just going to be delightfully vague just in case. But <laughs> I do. I have a, 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 a fairly involved part in the new uh, arc that I'm excited about. So awesome. you can no. see me, hear just, me in that. I just downloaded that game like a couple weeks ago as something to pick up when I had time. So. Oh, perfect! Yeah, yeah. We already we have a uh, uh, Laura Bailey uh, in our in critical role plays uh, Selena Kyle, Catwoman, mm-hmm. and Travis, her husband, and also one of our players, uh, is Harvey Dent. So uh, we're we're slowly just injecting <laughs> our, our players <laughs> into it. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Um, very good. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think what else I can announce at the moment. Um, uh, oh man. Mm, uh, just, I guess just keep an eye on social media uh, cause, uh, as, as things I can't announce uh, come up I'll, I'll be blasting them on there so. so people should be following you on Twitter and going to your website and all that kind of stuff I'd, I recommend it if you want to know what kind of things coming up uh, I'm at Matthew Mercer on Twitter and if, whenever things get announced I, I throw them up there so right. and, and I, I've, I've always been a little bit curious Matthew versus Matt uh, Matt, Matt is just, I go by Matt casually. Matthew is just the kind of the professional title, yeah, you right. know, it, it looks better on a business card or an email. <laughs> sure. You know, it's different from going like, I'm Matthew or I'm Matt. You right. know, it's just, so I'm, I'm Matt generally. Cool. All right. So thank you for sharing all of that. We're going to take a quick break and tell people about our sponsor. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Noble Knight. They're a game store that specializes in finding out-of-print products, but they also carry the latest and greatest. My pick for this episode is the Taldori campaign setting, which, if you've been listening, you know I've already picked on a previous episode when we reviewed the campaign setting uh, and talked to the co-author that worked with Matt, Matt on it. Um, but how? But I have I have Matt here right now, so this is a rare opportunity to say, hey, this is our pick of the episode. Hey, Matt, what's the book about? And then he can tell us. So, hey, Matt, what's the book about? <laughs> the Taldori Campaign Guide uh, is a, a setting for you to run your D&D adventures in uh, the world of uh, that Critical Role takes place in. It is one continent in the world of Exandria, the continent where most of the Critical Role campaign takes place on, uh, in which uh, you have a, a diverse map and uh, information about all different locations, uh, information about the, the creation myth of the world, uh, the various uh, members of the pantheon that exist and what their where their alliances lie, as well as story hooks galore through each region and a number of uh, character options and uh, uh, possible encounter uh, elements in the back of the book. So it's, it's it's a nice little package. Yeah, and and I and despite his previous statements about it being a vanilla setting, uh, that was not enti- exactly true to my assessment uh, in in the review. It's got a lot of really interesting things going on there. So uh, what? Well, thank it, you. I appreciate that. It's definitely worth checking. And I and I even presented. I'm not playing in the setting myself, but I um, I presented some of the optional rules in the back, especially the the uh, resurrection rules that you have in there. Um, I presented those to my gaming group this last weekend and, and they were like, but that's harder, but yeah, but it's cooler. So, you know, so awesome. Very cool. I think I'm selling them on it. So perfect. All right. So people should check that out over at Noble Knight. Uh, follow the link at thetomeshow.com. And when you check out, let them know that the Tome Show sent you. Support for the Tome Show comes from Noble Knight. From Noble Knight. Noble Knight? Knight. Knight?
thousands of tabletop gamers use a Noble Knight to sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. NobleKnight.com, the brick-and-mortar online store where out-of-print is available again. Tell them the Tome Show sent you. I use Noble Knight. You do? I love it. It's trying to sound creepy, though. I also want to remind people that you can support us by shopping at Amazon and DMs Guild from the links over at thetomeshow.com, and you can also be a patron at patreon.com slash thetomeshow, where you get early peeks at what we're doing and help us guide future episodes. Now, Matthew C. Mercer. Yes? It is time to see how quickly you can get through the chain lightning round. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you are going to answer 20 questions. It's the same 20 questions for every guest, since, since I took over hosting duties on this show anyway. Uh, and you're going to try to answer as quickly as you can while still providing satisfying answers and beat the fastest time. Satisfying is the key word here. Okay. Satisfying, yeah. If it's not particularly <laughs> satisfying, I'll keep asking follow-up questions and that'll be okay. Oh boy. <laughs> um, the current record was set by Mike Shea, who I think you actually recorded a DM's deep dive with uh, a little while back. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun talk. Yeah, so he's a good, he's a good friend of the show, uh, and awesome. so uh, we, we, he's he has the current record at five minutes and fifteen seconds for uh, those those twenty questions. Uh, oh, that geez. said, the previous competitor was Amy Vorpal, who I, I think oh, you Amy. might also know, right? Yeah, uh, I love Amy. So, yeah, so she came in at almost eight minutes. So there's some wiggle room, you know. So okay, good to know. Are you ready? I'm about to hit start on the timer. Ready as I'll ever be. And some of these I think people generally will know, so they may not be uh, too surprising. All right. Number one, do you prefer to play or DM? I prefer to DM. I find for me and my skill set, uh, I find it more fulfilling. I like to gift people. I love to give things to people. That's where I derive a lot of my joy from. And there's very few things in life I find more uh, gift worthy than being a dungeon master. All right. Number two, what was your first RPG? My very first RPG was, uh, well, tabletop-wise, was uh, second edition D&D. As far as uh, video game-wise, that would have been the original Final Fantasy for the NES. Oh, I, I started on that one, too. Uh, number three, do you know the name of the person who first introduced you to RPGs? Uh, yeah, his name is, uh, my name is, sorry, his name is Ray. We went to <laughs> high school together. He was my first dungeon master. Uh, he was part of the popular arts club, which was the video game anime club that I, uh, eventually became president of at high school. And he was a terrible dungeon master, though I liked the guy. And he, <laughs> it was his terrible dungeon mastering that eventually forced me to take up the mantle and become one until now. Very good. Do you still keep up with him? Nope. No. Okay. <laughs> we all scattered after high school. Yeah, I can imagine. Number four, create the title of a book that sits on a mad wizard's shelf. Oh, let's see. Uh, incantations of affiliated fracture. Okay. I don't know what that's about, but it, it sounds like it's going to break things. That's the idea. Yep. <laughs> Number five. Name a game or adventure you have not played, but you want to. Oh, oh man. I really want to play through Curse of Strahd. Like I, I, I've, I've run Ravenloft. I've run Strahd. I want to play in the game. I want someone else to mess with me. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's next on my list too, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, number six, the last game product you bought. The last game product I bought would have been uh, a whole new set of the D&D 5th edition uh, spell cards for all the classes. Because oh, okay, they kept cool. getting scattered and lost, and I just wanted to re-up on that for when we had mm -hmm. guests and people for one-shots. That's for the, uh, the Gale Force 9 cards? Yep, those. Yeah, yeah. Cool. 
Number seven. Give me the na- make up the name of a brand new NPC. Uh, let's see. Klein and McGovern. Klein and McGovern. Very good. Uh, number eight. The name of a PC that you've played. Oh, uh, Kraden Grimthorn was a dwarven fighter I played in a fourth edition campaign for two years and eventually became an NPC in uh, Tal'Dorei. You'll see him in the campaign guide as uh, a member of the Brawlers Guild. Very cool. Number nine, your favorite house rule. My favorite house rule is... Oh, man. Oh, there's a bunch. I would say my favorite house rule is... uh, Natural 20s may not always mean success, but it always means some fabulous, ridiculous, unexpected scenario will happen. I don't want anybody to to roll a 20 and not have something cool happen. Even if it doesn't succeed, even a partial success or some sort of narrative beat that defines a memorable moment to me should always be uh, exalted. Uh, very good. I, I imagine that's hard to, to codify, you know, like in a, in a campaign setting, you know, where you've yeah, codified yeah. some of your house rules. Uh, number 10, how long are your game sessions? Um, they, we'll say critical role generally runs anywhere from three to five hours generally, usually around the four hour mark is average. Um, home games, because scheduling is always a pain in the ass as an adult, um, would be like once every six to eight weeks we'd play for an eight, nine hour long marathon session. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get to play twice, twice a month, but we play for like six hours at a time. Yeah, totally. Uh, number 11, name a fantasy tavern. Fantasy tavern. Let's see. Um, the Sands Whisper In. Oh, I, I see. It, it, it works two ways. Number 12, a source of inspiration that has influenced your game. Oh, um, my grandmother. <laughs> there you go. Uh, just a lot of a lot of stories back and forth growing up about like the the Tolkien based world building and what about fantasy stories uh, inspired her as an artist and uh, I th- I think often back to those conversations we had and that kind of drives my love of narrative so I, I owe a lot of inspiration to her. All right, thirteen best race class combination. Oh, uh, dwarf bard. Fourteen best alignment. Uh, I will say. It's, I mean, best alignment for me would probably be lawful evil because it's the most unique that could possibly work in a setting of non-evil characters. It's the, one of the most difficult. So for me, I love that idea. All right. 15, experience points or automatic leveling up? Oh, I, for a long time and up until recently, have been experience points all the way. But the more my gameplay gets more and more narrative-based and have more players at the table, experience points are getting just unwieldy to maintain. And I'm, I think I may be switching over to automatic leveling at Milestones. Right on. Uh, 16, best way to determine stats? Uh, I enjoy 46, drop the lowest, range is desired, um, because uh, when, you know, with, with a minimum uh, roll number, I, I like players to have a lot of flexibility and ranging stats. I love low stats. I love super high stats. I love things that can define a character, and I think that can be hard to get in, in point cost systems sometimes. All right. Make up an elven curse, number 17. Uh, Slevorin. Of course. You I, know. Feel, I feel cursed right now. You uh, 18, your favorite game book? My favorite game book would be, I'd say books. It's the Encyclopedia Magica. 
from second edition. From second I read, edition. Oh. I reckon I read them backward to forward. I just something about that, the history in those books and the unique designs of various magical items and ridiculous designs. I loved them. Mm-hmm. Um, 19. De- how do you feel about devices at the table? Uh, I don't mind it as long as it doesn't detract from people listening and being in the moment. You know, if you have to look things up or have to take care of things, that's fine. But if I catch you staring at your phone for more than 30 seconds, I'll call you on it. If it continues to be a thing, it may have in-game detriment. Okay. Uh, 20, uh, tell us a story from your game table. Uh, Okay, let's see. Uh, I remember the end of uh, my two-and-a-half-year Expedition to Ravenloft 3.5 game where our rogue, who was kind of like an Indiana Jones professor, uh, turned Dungeon Delver, eventually, after they defeated Strahd, had been so corrupted that he then took the throne for himself, cut out the Bard's tongue, and turned him into a lackey, and then the epilogue of the campaign had him now becoming the new equally terrible ruler over Barovia. <laughs> Very good. And that is our time, and your finish time was exactly seven minutes. So you you, uh, beat, you beat Amy, but you couldn't beat Mike. Nah, nah, that's Okay. <laughs> It was a, a lofty, a lofty attempt, and respectfully, Mike continues to be the master. Yeah, he's been the master for a while. I guess I must have uh, let him off light on the follow-up questions. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show. Uh, you've already mentioned your website, MatthewMercer.com, right? Uh, MatthewMercerOnline.com. It's under revision. They'll be updated soon to a new site. I have okay. somebody working on it. And and but, as uh, well, you're on Twitter at, at Matthew Mercer. Anywhere else that people should go if they want to find out about Matt Mercer or, yeah, or uh, make contact with you? Uh, Instagram uh, is uh, Matthew Mercer VO, and uh, I mean that and the the critical role the critical role Reddit I occasionally jump into and and will throw throw my two cents here and there. So uh, those are kind of the best best avenues to to prod me. Ah, excellent. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to thank our sponsor, uh, Noble Knight. I also want to thank our patrons from patreon.com slash the Tome Show. They get a first peek of things. Stephen Robertson, Leonard Peltier, Robert Aducci, Matt Bible, Doug Palmer, Mark Richmond, Jeremiah McCoy, and many others. And of course, anyone who heads over to thetomeshow.com and clicks on the links for Amazon or DMs Guild, which gives you the same experience, but throws a few coppers in the, in the tin for us. If you want to reach out to me, my email is thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can tweet me. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H, or the show's uh, Twitter account is at thetomeshow. You can call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. This has been Gamer to Gamer with Matthew Mercer, because sometimes you have to get out from behind the DM screen and meet people. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure, bud. Absolutely. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D unless you want to, like me. You don't think we fancy. Let me teach you about class. Priest, fighter, bone, catch a kick your ass. You don't think we street. Look at this table full of rice. You don't think we hard. Just touch my But a thief in the shoes My character shoots Cause they fold to the brim With maxed out sass Out to open my DM He think he in charge We don't worry about him Except for when he out to get us Be like Jack the Scram Master player, traitor Master creator Look at me, master NPC generator Just cause she a master Doesn't mean you have to hate her Got a boy, I don't need to be no master later I don't care if over there Your character is dying Cause it's just like baseball There's no crying You wanna join in? Now you start realizing we're the cool, cool nerds. Call me Neil deGrasse Tyson. D to the R to the A, goodness. D and D. 
The dungeon master sets up a scenario Then he or she asks, where would you like to go? We talk as a group, then decide together There's no winning, yo, we could play forever Stay right there, let me answer your questions I'll clear up all your misconceptions Stay right there, let me answer your questions I'll clear up all your misconceptions You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to you don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to, like me You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to, like me You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to like me. I'm on the wall.